I learned somewhat recently that Christmas is not what I thought it was. I had been misled. Or perhaps more accurately, our society doesn't tell us about the time before. Once there was another kind of Christmas, far more ancient than the one we celebrate. Our Christmas, the Christmas of 2022, is only about 200 years old. Before that, and for much of Christmas history, it was a minor holiday. Two of the Christian Gospels don't even mention the birth of Jesus. One only goes into much detail. In English and colonial America, Christmas was hardly a reverential sacred day. The Puritans, our spiritual ancestors, banned the holiday for several years because it was seen as an excuse for a drunken rowdiness. Up through the American Revolution and well beyond, many churches held no Christmas services or Christmas Eve services or really any acknowledgement of the holiday itself. There was one tradition, though, that people did participate in, many people, although depending on who you were, it was participated in reluctantly. Since the Middle Ages, wassailing, wassailing involved folks of lower status approaching wealthier folks, going door to door in nice neighborhoods. The poorer folks would knock on the wealthy person's door and proceed to sing a carol or some other song. Now the expectation then would be that the wealthy person would open their door joyfully and cheerfully and, and offer something in return. Dessert, ale, a fine meal. The song we sang earlier, We Wish You a Merry Christmas, has its origin in the wassail tradition. Give us some figgy pudding, they say. It's like a Christmas version of trick-or-treating. Sometimes various lords and wealthy people would embrace this tradition. They would hold a large feast to host the wider community, inviting their vassals and local workforce to an annual festival. Others simply played along, bowing to custom. We see versions of the wassail tradition today holiday tips to staff of apartment buildings or other service workers, along with the annual urgings to give to shelters and the poor and food pantries. Regardless of the context, though, it's impossible to understand the Wassail tradition without looking at class and economic dynamics. In the We Wish You a Merry Christmas Carol, we see a little bit of that with a hint of danger, admits the good cheer. We won't go until we get some. That is a not so subtle threat. Many of the revelers expected the rich to play their part. And when they didn't, they could resort to property destruction and violence. In modern times, tips to service workers are given both out of generosity and gratitude, but also 
to ensure continued good service. No one likes a bad tipper. Some scholars argue that the wealthy put up with the tradition for that very reason. Christmas was a safety valve and normalized the inequality that existed between rich and poor. If the wealthy played their part with graciousness and generosity during the holiday season, then they could justify the status quo for the rest of the year and expect a high level of service and loyalty from those who served them. It was for this very reason that Frederick Douglass, the great American thinker and abolitionist, loathed Christmas. A Christmas tradition in the slavery South was for Christmas or for slave owners to invert the master-slave dynamic just for Christmas, where slave owners offered enslaved persons personal gifts, food, lots of alcohol, degrees of relative freedom, and welcomed them in to their homes as if they were family and friends and equals. To Douglas, slave owners used this Christmas tradition as proof that slavery was humane and also to convince enslaved people that their owners were actually benevolent and kind and the whole system was just in the end. How could such generous, festive, warm people welcome them in for Christmas? Douglas said of the holidays that I believe them to be the most effective means in the hands of the slave holder in keeping down the spirit of insurrection. Christmas was that means. This sentiment has been echo echoed by the scholar and historian Stephen Nessenbaum. To Christmas, to him, Christmas provided the wealthy with the profoundly ritualized means of coming to terms with their own complicity, the larger system that breeds injustice. Christmas was then for many years about power and equality and moral justification. For the poor and enslaved, it was an opportunity to turn the tables and release pent-up frustration and resentment. For the rich and powerful, it was a path to renewed social control, a bribe to maintain inequality, and also personal absolution. I can't be that bad, they would reason, if I am nice during Christmas. Now these arrangements worked for many years, but eventually the arrangement started to fall apart. It actually started right here in New York City. In the 1820s, our beautiful city of New York faced an unprecedented number of immigrants and the growth of the urban working poor, many of whom were not actually working and horribly unemployed. Anger about their circumstances matched with plenty of free time and high alcohol consumption during the holidays led to increasingly disruptive Christmas festivities. While sailing at times turned to riots and violence with loud out of control mobs moving around the city, demanding things from the wealthy. Now scholars debate how much of this social 
unrest was actually social protest versus a more chaotic disorder fueled by who knows what. But there is no doubt that the Christmas tradition at the time highlighted the inequalities of society and offered a channel for many who were poor to do something about it, to act out, to no longer consent to be active participants in a ritual of subservience. Not surprisingly, during the 1820s, this renewed social disorder did not please the elites of New York. In their eyes, these were assemblies of ne'er-do-wells, interested not in the birth of Jesus, but in an excuse, quote, for gambling, drunkenness, quarreling, and swearing. It had to end. So what they did next is perhaps one of the most remarkable instances of social engineering in history. These wealthy New Yorkers, called Knickerbockers, would go ahead and invent the Christmas we celebrate today. They wanted to get people off the streets, so they made Christmas all about family. They wanted to redirect gift giving, not to random poor people at your door, but to children. They wanted to get rid of loud and rowdy crowds, so they emphasized silent nights and sleeping and heavenly peace. They wanted social harmony, so they emphasized love and joy for all. And they wanted devotion, so they made sure churches celebrated Christmas and did not forget this was a sacred day. What they created was objectively beautiful, and it caught on immediately. And it is the version of Christmas that most Americans continue to celebrate today. The believe is the only Christmas. But that Christmas also suddenly was toothless. By emphasizing peace and harmony, it neutered disruption and unrest. By focusing on family and children and Christmas trees and presents, it shifted the focus away from society, suggesting that Christmas was actually about the home and interpersonal relationships, rather than about the world we live in and all its harmful inequities. Please don't get me wrong. I love our 2022 Christmas. I love all the silent nights and the gift-giving and the children and all those fond memories. But I've also learned that it's come at a cost. We have to remember that Christmas wasn't always this. We should know that it was invented to feel ancient and timeless. They call it an invented tradition. It was invented mostly by Washington Irving, who brilliantly wrote this version of Christmas to seem true and historic. To look back in the timeless past, even though he made most of it up. People 10 years after the Knickerbockers came to invent Christmas would talk about the ancient traditions of Christmas, even though none of it really existed. I believe Christmas and Irving's version of Christmas, which many of us 
love is okay. But it should also be more than that. Christmas needs to be about justice and society and its inequalities, because that's also what the original Christmas story promised. Jesus was born not just to be comforting, not just to offer us peaceful aesthetics and warm fuzzy feelings about mangers and stars and angels in a humble family one beautiful night long ago. Jesus' birth was a promise, a promise from God that things were going to change, that in a world of sin and suffering and oppression and empire, hope was on the way because God was being born and was here on earth. The night of Jesus' birth 2,000 years ago may have been peaceful, but his life was one of disruption. He would challenge the status quo, who is undeniably critical of inequality in those who hoarded wealth, and he promised that God would indeed make the first last and the last first. His life and ministry would make many people very angry, especially those in power. His death was anything but comforting. If anything, Christmas is the quiet before the storm, the breath before the plunge, the preparation for all that comes. We can learn about this other version of Christmas from the black church, a tradition that knows well the suffering and weight of systemic oppression. There, Christmas is not often always celebrated just for the momentary peace it brings, but because it marks the beginning of the end of the status quo. Life might be hard now, but rejoice because God will make it all right. This perspective might be what led Langston Hughes, the celebrated 20th century black poet, to write a fairly devastating critique of Irving's Christmas, a holiday that excuses and ignores so much of the suffering of the world in favor of whitewashed proclamations of peace on earth and goodwill to all. Here are a few lines of Langston's Christmas poem entitled simply, Merry Christmas. It was written in December of 1930. So the history is a bit dated, but the spirit of critique and of the most ancient Christmas remains true. Here is a sample from his words. Merry Christmas, China, from the gunboats in the river, 10-inch shells for Christmas gifts, and peace on earth forever. Merry Christmas, India, to Gandhi in his cell, from righteous Christian England, ring out bright Christmas bell. And to you down in outers, due to economic laws, O oh, eat, drink, and be merry with a bread line, Santa Claus. While all the world hails Christmas, while all the church bells sway, while better still the Christian guns proclaim this joyful day. Christmas to Hughes without social critique is no Christmas at all. 
It is a ruse to feel good about ourselves, to let ourselves believe that we believe in peace on earth without confronting our own complicity, without doing any hard work or doing much at all outside of singing nice songs. It is a veneer of good feelings, painting over spiritual rot, the worst form of Christmas hypocrisy. So this Christmas, I invite you to embrace this ancient tradition of Christmas, to question the powerful, to agitate for change, to demand your fair share and others' fair share of the wealth, to actually commit to being part of that change that Jesus was born to bring. That as a world where the poor are blessed and the hungry are blessed, and the weeping and the hated are blessed. I want to keep Irving's Christmas. I love it. I was raised with it. I suspect many of us here were too. But remember, too, and cherish the warnings of Douglas and Hughes. Remember that Jesus was not born to give us a silent night, but a just and free world. Remember that justice is not achieved through silence or peace or comfort. It was not in Jesus's time. It is not now still. It is not achieved in the home with safeness and soundness, but on the streets, in the world with open eyes and open hearts. That too is Christmas more ancient than the Christmas most of us know. The Christmas of wassailing, of the poor, of the workers, and perhaps most importantly, it is the Christmas of Jesus himself. Let us remember that Christmas this year. Amen. Hello, Reverend Schuyler. Thanks for being with me again today for after the message or getting the message. <laughs> Thanks, Deb. Thanks for, for joining me and hosting and, uh, and leading our conversation. Awesome. So let's jump right in. Um, this is a very timely and relevant um, discussion. Uh, what sources or reference material did you use um, to just come to your, your message? Yeah, there's a lot of great, um, great resources out there, articles uh, and books about um, how the Christmas holiday, as we understand it, came into being. Um, probably the, the biggest um, the biggest source that I used was The Battle for Christmas by, I want to say his name is Stephen Nissenbaum. Um, and he, uh, he wrote, a, it was probably about 15, 20 years ago that he wrote a book. It was a Pulitzer Prize finalist um, and really just a profound, uh, profound history of, of where so many of our, our Christmas traditions um, and Christmas ideas came from. Um, and it, it turns out, you know, in his, in his research and his study that it was so tied to issues of class and economic inequality um, that I think has often been lost. Um, and so part of what I hope is reflecting on that, um, how, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it was a reflection about history, but it's also about ideas, right? And how we today understand what Christmas is and, and, and there's nothing wrong with how we understand how Christmas is, but that we should be aware that there's a reason why, right? It is that way. And, and make sure that we don't lose some of what used to 
be Christmas, which you know had a deeper sense of, I think, class and economic inequality that was uh, that came to the surface around the Christmas holiday that we've kind of lost to some level, um, particularly around um, you know this idea that that Jesus was a disruptor rather than mm-hmm. a, a purely peacemaker. Obviously, Jesus liked peace, but he also you know he came to 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 overthrow a certain system that, mm-hmm. that you know, wanted to replace with the, the kingdom uh, uh, of God or kingdom of heaven on earth. And um, that, you can't do that with if it's only silent nights and mm-hmm. a manger scene. And so we can, we can appreciate that experience and that, you know, the, the beauty that is Christmas Eve and Christmas itself, but we shouldn't, it shouldn't be lost that also the birth of Jesus represented the beginning of an incredibly disruptive era for those who believe that Jesus was there to, to do this amazing work of, of making earth finally just, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that doesn't happen by just us hanging out and saying, oh, we want peace, right? It happens by like, hard work. I mean, Jesus overthrew tables in the temple with a lot of anger and um, he was so threatening to the authorities that they killed him, you know, so that's, that's mm-hmm. hardly a peaceful thing. And so being aware that, that although Christmas Eve, the night of Christmas Eve in the morning is, is this very, very still, silent, warm, warm fuzzies, as, as you said earlier, right, that <laughs> it was the prelude to something that people were really looking, looking to, to change things drastically in, in the world. And, and that can't be lost, right? And, and part of what Christmas history was, was an awareness of that and sort of a desire to, to overturn the social structures that existed that were so unequal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's amazing. <laughs> um, I'm wondering, this is a very like warm and fuzzy time for people with families, everyone. Um, mostly tries to embrace like the warm beverages and time with families or friends and um, how, I know you give some insight in the message about this, but what more would you say about balancing this desire for, or this hope for like peace and like warmth um, amongst each other versus not forgetting the inequities and the work that is still to be done? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great, a great question, and and I think I would, what I wouldn't want people to do is come out of the sermon being like, "Gosh, like the way I celebrate Christmas is the worst, right? Like I'm just, I'm just, a, you know, a pretender, a complicit in the, you know, the this injustice of the world." And I, that's, I love Christmas. I love the Silent Night, and that, you know, I love our Christmas Eve service where we're all with our candles, and I, I love the holidays. I got my holiday tie here, and you know, I. All of that stuff is stuff that I have a lot of love and affection for. Um, and so, you know, my hope is that the message is not, you can't have any of the good, like the, the stuff you love, right? Like throw that out and let's just, let's just talk about, <laughs> you know, poverty and, and these are like depressing things. It's not what I'm saying. I, I think what, what I would say is that without that side of things, the rest of it is, is hollow, right? You know, there's mm-hmm. that old quote, which I'm not remembering specifically, but it's like, you know, if, you, if you're neutral in the face of oppression, then you are, you're yeah. siding with the oppressor, right? And so during Christmas, if, if and, and beyond Christmas, right? If you're, not, if you're not actively engaged in the questions of, um, you know, injustice, poverty, inequality, then you are essentially condoning the structures and the systems and the realities that allow those things to happen. And um, 
I think there's something really beautiful about Christmas. I mean, I about understanding the birth of Jesus as as the beginning of this great hope for the world um, mm -hmm. that does happen in this peaceful, silent night, um, but is this sort of breath before this, you know, unleashing of 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 radical love and justice onto the world that we are all active co-creators with, right? Um, so for me, they they work very well together. I mean, part of what's so inspiring about Jesus as a person to me is that that he is this sort of radical person. You know, in, in church we listen to a song called uh, uh, "Radical Jesus," right, or something radical, something uh, <laughs> birth of the of the uh, rebel Jesus, rebel Jesus. That's it. Yeah, um, and uh, it's a nice little song about about how Jesus was a rebel enough that they executed him. So. I think, I think there, if we feel like we are ever hopeless in the world, Christmas is the beginning, is a celebration of the beginning and the end of that. And um, if we want more than just one night every year, peace on earth and goodwill to all, like we should want that rebel Jesus to, to be on our side, right? Um, and so I think when I think about like mixing that with our warm and fuzzy Christmas traditions, um, you know, it's about recognizing that warm and fuzzies a you know i think that i don't see there's anything wrong with it or any kind of irreconcilable difference between like you know if i'm talking to my son about christmas and he's too young to really understand things but <laughs> you're like yeah christmas is great and like jesus is here to make the world a better place um not just to sit with our sort of expecting everything to be fine by just wishing it right just saying peace mm -hmm. on earth peace on mm -hmm. earth doesn't doesn't actually accomplish it and so what does it mean for us to do it um, and I do think that like the love that Christmas encourages us to have within families is, you know, a love that can expand outwards, right? So, you mm. know, if we're talking to children. I know you you work with our kids here. The love that we have in our families, right? The love we have with our friends and our, you know, people who are closest to us like that, that is a, that is a, that is a sentiment that clues us into a love that can, that is, that can be wider, right? So, mm. um, that is an experience of love that gives us a taste of what the world should be like everywhere and all uh, and all across the world, no matter who we are. Um, and I think that if that's taught to our kids, that the love that we feel for on Christmas and that joy we feel is a feeling that that people should experience all the time and with with everybody. Uh, that that is like it's a little lesson about like what the world should be Christmas morning, right? With where everyone's mm -hmm. feeling good and happy and couldn't see when everyone's feeling so at peace with the candle, right? And singing the songs <laughs> that they love, right? Like that, it is a, a a symbol and like a, it's like a signpost that we can be like, this is what should be all the time. And so we can follow that and, and sort of use it as our guide to say, okay, here's what we have to do to get to that that space where where it there really is peace on earth and goodwill to all. And Christmas can kind of be our sense of like, that's what it will feel like when we've done it. It is something wonderful to look forward to and to work for. And thank you as always for such a timely message and deep thought and consideration for the things that are happening around us. Thanks, Deb. I appreciate your, your questions and your conversation. Um, mm -hmm. You have uh, fun Christmas traditions that, that uh, you're looking forward to? <laughs> um, yes, I think Christmas Eve, we do a lot of like, let's go around the room and say what we're grateful for this year. And then you open one present. Um, and listen, we, we listen to Christmas music a ton and start to just be silly and dance around the tree. <laughs> and then um, 
like dinner with family on Christmas day. So like more extended family. So I, I look forward to just being together with my extended family because it happens so infrequently. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a lovely, a lovely holiday. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Many blessings. Thanks for chatting. Thank you, Deb. Right. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas to you and to all those out there watching. Bye-bye, everyone. Happy holidays. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.